The future of the Republican Party up for a vote this week. The drip of the Biden PR fiasco. And of course, the Republican stupidity bomb is coming to destroy America. This is Beyond Politics and specifically the Balance of Power Roundtable, where we get perspectives from the left and center. I'm Matt Robeson, your host with our usual panel of former Democratic U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant Alicia Preston. Let's talk about that future of the Republican Party. The thing that's up for a vote that would normally feel like inside baseball is who is going to be the chairperson of the Republican National Committee, the Republican Party. And it's coming down to the wire with a vote scheduled for this Friday as we record this on January 24th. The issue is that the two contenders seem to have very different visions about what it is that the Republican Party is supposed to be doing and whether or not they failed in that mission. And of course, there's the Trump of all of it. Paul, have you been following this and what do you make of this contest? between Ronna McDaniel and I want to get the pronunciation right, Harmeet Dillon. I have to confess, I couldn't give two cents for the destruction of the Republican Party, either whack job they choose, because whoever's going to lead the Republican Party has got to be a whack job by definition. But maybe Alicia, who is, who calls herself a Republican, although at this point, I think Alicia could be the chair of the Republican National Committee, except she's a rhino because she's actually got a brain. She's actually sentient. She's actually logical. She actually makes common sense. She's actually a true conservative of Are the you old wooing? school. Are you wooing Alicia to join us, Paul? It's, Is that what you're I'm, doing here? I think that I, as, as challenging as it is for a Republican of conscience to still belong to a party which has the kind of shenanigans going on as the Republicans, I think Alicia would do very well as a blue dog Democrat because Ooh. really that's what she is. She's now, don't, basically don't go that way. Don't go that way because fresh this week, the blue dogs are dying. They're down to seven blue dogs. Alicia, you'll never grow old You'll never die, but you must feed if you join the Democratic Party. So that's what's on offer to you. And if you can name the movie that's from, I'll give you an extra gold star. Um, so I'm going to have to. I know. I don't know. But well, let me say this. First of all, I, I am a Republican. And I'm a Republican, however, because I believe in a set of conservative principles, not because I believe in one weirdly idled man. So I therefore consider myself far more of a Republican than either of the two women who are running to lead the party, for which I do not give one hot damn. Who nice. All right, let me lay out why I think this matters, hot or cold, dams of any temperature <laughs> aside. What's weird about the argument here is that Dylan is arguing that, first of all, the Republican Party needs to take a much heavier hand in the messaging about what the party stands for, superseding what the individual candidates are saying. And more specifically, she thinks that the party is fundamentally deficient in turning out voters. Her theory of the case is, and I want to quote her accurately here, is that essentially Democrats' candidates are just as bad as the Republican candidates. And mind you, this is a list that includes Carrie Lake in Arizona, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, and Herschel Walker in Georgia. Her contention is, the Democrats' candidates are just as bad. It's just that, quote, Democrats are efficient at turning out the vote for their candidate. 
bad, good or ugly, they get it. They drag their terrible candidates across the finish line. I want to say shenanigans on that one. There was a really great analysis out this week from the New York Times, Nate Cohn, who looked at Arizona specifically, Carrie Lake race, and pointed out that Republicans had amazingly strong turnout and did very well in their down ballot races. And they lost the top of the ballot races, Senate, governor, and attorney general. They got 75% of registered Republicans voting compared to just 69% for the Democrats. And in Maricopa County, the all-important vote center in the state, there were almost 40,000 voters who didn't vote for Carrie Lake, but otherwise voted for Republicans. These are 40,000 gettable voters. 33,000 of them voted for now Governor Katie Hobbs. So let me just submit back to you. That was election fraud. I just want to point out that election was stolen. There was like some software glitches or something. I can't keep up. All elections are stolen, which Republicans lose. Obviously. Was this the thing with the Chinese bamboo ballots? Is that did they finally come to to get us? They may have. I think the Jewish space lasers blew some ballots up on the way into the slots. What does good or bad really mean? Because if you've got Herschel Walker, Mehmet Oz, and the immutable Ms. Lake as candidates, the words good or bad don't really apply. I think it's an everlasting shame upon the Republican voters of Georgia that 48.9% of them voted for Herschel Walker, a man who's not politically deficient so much as he is, I don't know, like deficient in a human sense. This is a man who held a gun to his ex-wife's head. He should be in prison. He shouldn't be standing for election to the United States Senate. But I think you're bringing up- football player. Eh, he was fine. I think, I think- you're bringing up a really interesting point because the it is an unsolvable problem for Republicans right now. It reminds me a little bit of the Anna Karenina principle, which is that happy families are all the same and unhappy families are each unhappy in their own way. You have a generalized problem that we identified in our show with the celebrated Democratic pollster Jeff Pollack last week, where you said on the show that on average, MAGA candidates had a five-point penalty. They performed five points worse than the rest of the Republican field. So that's a generalized problem. But there's a vast difference between what ailed Herschel Walker and what ailed Mehmet Oz and what ailed Blake Masters and what ailed Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake's problem was the MAGA. She crazy? But she's crazy. <laughs> she's but just she, crazy. She MAGA crazy, right? <laughs> Herschel Walker is crazy, violent, he's vampire, werewolf, crazy. Like he's actually crazy. And I, so I don't know how you solve that because you, if you're a Republican, if you want to be, if you're Harmie Dill or you're Ron McDaniel, you've got to somehow perform a delicate MAGA-ectomy from the Republican party. It's like a Trump exorcism. You've got to do that and not pay the MAGA five-point penalty anymore, but do have to also address separately that just being MAGA itself seems to draw in these nutball candidates who are unelectable and should otherwise be electable. Just ask Brian Kemp. He's now the Republican governor of Georgia and Herschel Walker is not a senator because of the crazy. Well, I think that's 100% true. And I think Republicans need to learn what happened in November. I think 
there are things for the Democrats to learn on this, too, is why could someone like Herschel Walker be so close? Why should Carrie Lake be so close? Yeah, they have other Republican positions there, but they're not overwhelming Republicans. And the answer is because the country as a whole, with the exception of those who are solid Republicans and solid Democrats, are in a difficult place right now. And that's yeah. something that the Democrats, I don't think, have properly acknowledged or addressed. It's all been this victory lap that there wasn't this red wave, which is on Republicans. But Democrats Democrats, because they are in power in the White House and in the Senate, need to look and say, okay, but why did that Herschel Walker or Carrie Lake even get close? Because that middle America is unhappy with the direction of our country. And so while Republicans have a lot to learn about campaigns from what happened in November, which we're seemingly not learning, Democrats should take a lesson in governing for the sake of the American people. Yeah, damn straight, super smart. And I think a point that also comes out from that interview with Jeff Pollock. And we're taking right. whole interview is up on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. I'd urge people to check it out because what we did in the video version of it, and of course, we want you to listen to the pod, the audio pod, but what we did in the video version is we pasted in all of the charts, graphs, all the data that he brought to bear as part of that conversation. So it's a great watch as much as it's a great listen. We're also taking little clips like big headline nuggets of his analysis and we're putting them into YouTube shorts. So anyway, check out the Blue Amp channel. But that's exactly what I think he was driving at. It's so interesting. One of those shorts that we're going to be putting up, I think today, is his explanation of the fact that he was sitting in focus groups. And on this show, Alicia, you, the three of us have been talking a great deal in the run-up to the midterms about the question of what would voters care about? And you were making the case Look, inflation is the number one issue on voters' minds, and so it's just going to swamp anything else. It didn't work out that way, and it's in part because Jeff explained that in focus groups, voters were not ascribing the ills of inflation, the pain that they were feeling necessarily to Joe Biden or the Democrats. They had a more nuanced understanding of here's what's going on. It's COVID. It's supply chain. It's global factors. But, and here's the key point that I think I 100% agree with you about, that doesn't mean that Democrats did a great job talking about inflation or economic issues. That doesn't mean that your central contention, that Democrats were failing to empathize and talk about solutions, was wrong. I still think you were right in the run-up to the midterms, and I think you're right now. And I think the challenge the painful challenge for Democrats is you're 100% on. We feel like we just won something because we overperformed so much. That's the hardest time to look in the mirror and say, but don't we have a problem here that we have to address? Shouldn't we have done better against some of these nut jobs? The answer is yes, we should have done better. And the way we would have done better and the thing we need to do better on in the future is how do we talk about the economy? How do we talk about people's lived experience on the issues that are closest to their hearts? One of the things that, that, that came across to me that was really interesting in the Pollock interview, and I think is something we've talked about. Number one, as you pointed out, Matt, the notion that the electorate had a nuanced, more nuanced view of the inflation argument than we would have expected is really important because there are so many people who've talked about the dumbing down of the electorate. Oh, they just don't care. They just don't know. They don't pay attention. But the idea that somewhat complex economic notion 
inflation could be nuanced and people could say, okay, the Democrats aren't to blame. I think that's important for Democrats and Republicans both to take a deep breath and understand that maybe the electorate, the voters are paying attention. That's number one. Number two, importance of independence in this last election and where true independence went. Now, Alicia, when you talk about middle America upset about the direction of the country, I don't know I don't know that middle America means is the same thing as saying independence because not all independents really represent middle America. What has happened in this country is that for better or for worse, it looks like Democrats are branded as a party of the coastal educated elites and Republicans have been able to brand themselves as the party of the working person, of the small business working person, and Democrats are not. That's a remarkable shift in, in identification because Democrats always said, hey, we're here for the middle class. We're here for the little guy. We're here for all of us. It doesn't seem to be that's the way voters are breaking out, which is a real problem for Democrats, because if Democrats can't talk about the economy in a way that says to the small business man or woman, we're on your side, Democrats have a long term problem because that's that small business person is really the meat of the electorate. I think all of this is much simpler than anything we're saying here. I think, yes, middle America, the middle of the road people, the independents in many states or the undeclared in many states or the, what we call soft R's or soft D's, soft Republicans, soft Democrats, they tend to make the decisions in many states, including my home state of New Hampshire, but in many other states as well. And what did they do? They rejected the Republicans in many instances. Why? I don't think in retrospect it was the economy or not blaming the Democrats for the economy or Roe v. Wade, the Dobbs decision. I think it was a rejection of the crazy. It was mm. just a rejection of the crazy. If you talk to, and I've got a lot of friends who are independents because in my state, when there's 40% of them, a lot of people just are. And it was not a discussion of policy. And even though we talked every day about the price of eggs, that wasn't where the vote came down. People were tired of the crazy, the Trump crazy, the Trump sycophant crazy, the all the constant. Remember, this was only a couple, a few months after the Mar-a-Lago raid. And they just want normalcy and they don't want the extremism that is coming from the MAGA type Republicans. And that's not all Republicans, obviously, but it is a contingency that's holding on and we want them to let go. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt Robeson. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you'll love because I really enjoy it. It's just chock full of smart, engaging, surprising interviews and reports that go way beyond the usual partisan bludgeoning. You know what I'm talking about. The show is called The Gist. It's the longest running news and commentary podcast out there, and it has that kind of staying power because the host, Mike Pesca, just puts forward these really interesting arguments and asks great questions. You'll definitely hear things you don't agree with right next to arguments that make you say, damn straight. Plus, he's pretty funny. Some of the recent segments that I've really enjoyed, he tried to understand the Never Kevin Caucus. Yes, they're nihilistic, but also explained how they're acting in their own rational self-interest. He interviewed Michael Imperioli, you know, from The Sopranos. How about his interview with a guy who ran Stakem's Twitter account and Harvey Weinstein's prison consultant? If any of this sounds interesting to you, listen to The Gist every evening wherever you get your podcasts. 
So at, to me, bring can, that full circle, though, it's, uh, in this conversation, that's exactly the point you're making is exactly, I think, the same point that Nate Cohn is making in the New York Times, looking at those Maricopa County numbers from Arizona, right? 40,000 voters voted Republican on their mm. ballot and did not vote for Carrie Lake, the crazy nut job, right? 33,000 of them, not just, so out of that 40,000, 33,000 didn't just skip Carrie Lake, they actively voted for the Democrat. They repudiated her and voted for the Democrat. What's the message? This is the quintessence of a split ticket voter. They're mostly Republican voters who are coming in and saying, not you, you're too much. And I'm actively opposed. I'm not just skipping you. I, it's not just that I can't bring myself to vote for you. I'm going to vote for your opponent because I want to keep you out of office. 33,000 votes from Republicans or gettable swing voters that went to Katie Hobbs in an election that was decided by 17,000 votes. Double so, the margin. So, so Alicia, you're spot on. Alicia, so here we are. And when I think about our dis the discussion we've just had about rejecting the crazy and New Hampshire. So in the last election, New Hampshire's House of Representatives, the fourth largest in the English speaking world, four hundred people, mostly elderly retired people who can afford to volunteer. Whoa, wait, fourth largest or third largest? Fourth. Did we fall back a place? No, we always were. India, U.S., New Hampshire is my understanding. Anyway, oh, I, think, I wait, thought we fell back. Go no, on. But anyway, so now our 400 seat House of Representatives, where each representative represents three people, is basically <laughs> even, evenly split. I think it's like what, 201 to 199 or something? It's crazy. 201 to 198 because there's a special election. Okay. There's a special election and we hope the Democrat wins. The Democrat's likely to win. That's going to be 199. But who's counting? But meanwhile, guess who's coming to dinner? Guess who's coming to dinner in New Hampshire? The chief crazy himself. Paul, you just sent a big fat pitch right down the center of the plate. I'm going to turn on the TikTok cam. Alicia. Would you like to sound off about your feelings about Donald Trump coming to New Hampshire to speak to the Republican Party on Saturday? Go. I think all my most colorful language was used either via text with you guys last night or before we hit the play record button here. <laughs> I don't understand it. I am so dumbfounded. I could drop several four-letter words at, with ing at the end of them, but I'm not going to because I'm going to try understand why the Republican Party, who suffered losses in New Hampshire in all federal seats and also took a house that we should have had a major margin in and brought it down to nearly equal, which the difficulty there, guys, is when you got 400 people in a house, you don't know who's going to show up. So you never know what vote is going to happen in the house when it happens to get the work of the body done. And Trump loses two elections in a row in New Hampshire. His sycophants lose their races on the federal level in New Hampshire. And the Republican Party's lesson of that during a year that should have been a red wave is let's invite the guy here and tout him again. Especially because that's a great strategy. Because we got erstwhile presidential candidate Chris Sununu ginning up his campaign while Donald Trump comes to dinner. I can't wait to see the handshake with Chris Sununu and Donald Trump. Maybe Sununu has in his hand one of those 
Remember when the I was a kid? Little buzzer buttons? Yeah, it was this little buzzer button that you could get. I don't know. Shock maybe you the got person. them in Cracker Jack where you go, yeah. right? This is essentially, okay, so this appearance is essentially a seagull appearance from Donald Trump. The idea is you flap in, you leave crap all over everything, and you flap away. And this also brings our conversation full circle because we started this with the future of the Republican Party that's apparently up for a vote between these two contenders. And I teased the idea that, it's an interesting set of issues that they're fighting over. It's, oh, it's our message, or it's, oh, it's how we turn out voters. That's not the issue. The issue is they need to excise the crazy. There's a cancer inside one of the two major political parties in this country, and it has to be excised. It has to be addressed. And neither of these potential leaders of the Republican Party is willing to come out and say it. And no one is willing to come out and say not just that the emperor has no clothes, the emperor is actively destroying the empire. And until people have enough backbone to come out and say that, and Alicia, you commendably do, and until those people are in positions of authority to do something within the party, the Republicans are going to continue to suffer. And I, for one, I actually disagree a little bit because I believe that a healthy Republican Party is actually good for America. I say that as a Democrat. I believe that a healthy alternative restrains the extreme in any one party and by giving somewhere else for the voters to go. But we haven't had a healthy Republican Party in quite some time. On that note, I do have another story that we have to talk about here about how the unhealthiness in the Republican Party might seriously hurt America. But I feel like that's just too much Republican crazy to put on poor Alicia. We need to give her a break. We need to put some democratic problems as a cream in this Oreo cookie that we're presenting here. And so, you've got them. Oh, yes. I've got the cream here for you. Go ahead, Alicia. Un unlock your Oreo, scrape off the cream, and enjoy what I'm about to serve up. I'm speaking Do you have of milk? course. Do you have any milk? There as much milk as you like. Okay, excellent. I'm speaking, of course, the cream in the sandwich of the drip drip of the Biden documents PR fiasco. The Daily, the New York Times pod led off this morning with a whole timeline of how did we end up in this mess? Oh, now, God. regular listeners have heard me say before, the principle in a PR situation is get it out, get the information out, get it all out and get it out yourself. Do not allow the drip. And Times did a great job of laying out how for maybe commendable reasons, the team, the small team inside the White House thought that the approach that they've taken would be the right approach. Nonetheless, we have ended up in the drip and there was another tranche of documents found over the weekend. Now, look, I want to maintain some clarity about this. Tranche is, is a big still, word. Tranche, tranche. Is a big, first of all, yeah, there, there were a few more documents. A few more documents. Six. Okay. Six. There is still, you're right, Paul. There's a yawning chasm. There's a huge difference between what happened in Trump's case and what happened in Biden's case. We want to be clear about this. There is a giant, giant difference. Paul, last week you were talking about the issue of intent, which is really critical from a legal standpoint. Donald Trump had the intent to deceive law enforcement, to deceive the federal government, the Department of Justice, and the archives. He lied about the existence of these documents. 
Also, there's a question of scale. He had way, way more documents than Joe Biden ever had. And Joe Biden fully cooperated and was falling over himself to try to immediately get anything that was found over to the Department of Justice. So there's a huge difference here. I'm not trying to paper over that. But it is nonetheless the case that what we've ended up with is a drip drip of we find some more, we find some more, and the public disclosure of what was found has been lagged. So, Paul, what do you make of this? Have we ended up in the absolute worst PR position possible? It's pretty awful. Joe Biden's popularity was surging a point or two or three or four. Even after the midterms, things started look started, started looking good. The Democrats did well. Biden's accomplishments were being touted everywhere. And then all of a sudden, this classified document imbroglio develops. And it looks like that Biden and his staff made a series of really bad decisions about when, what to reveal, when to reveal it, how to reveal it, starting from the get-go when they decided that if after the initial discovery in November of a few pieces of paper, they kept silent about it, they might be able to convince the DOJ, the Justice Department, that there was no there, which has been Biden's mantra about this. There is no there. We don't have to worry about it. And DOJ would let them go without without worrying about it. But that didn't happen. And there are now lawyers looking for documents. There's FBI looking for documents. And yes, there's a world of difference. And we're not even going to get into both sidesism, what about isms, because it look, if Donald Trump had said, oops, I made a terrible mistake. It turns out that a bunch of boxes that I didn't pay attention to ended up in Mar-a-Lago. Please come and take them all. If he had said that, we wouldn't have had all the sturm about Trump and should he be prosecuted for classified documents. You contrast what Trump did with Biden did, which is DOJ, come on in. FBI, come to my home. Spend 14 hours going top to bottom through my dop kit. Look at my underarm deodorant. Take a look in my medicine chest for documents. Come on in. Come on in. Look behind the toilet. Where you think you can find a document? You guys, come on in and please find them. I'm just, I'm opening up my home to you. You can look at intent. And then the last point I want to make is this. I don't think there is anything truly unusual about the fact that a former vice president, having spent as much time in politics and eight years in office as vice president with access to classified information, when he leaves in a flurry, will his staff will accidentally pack up some papers, and they can be found in various places. This is not unusual. It happens with every administration. It is routine. And Biden, to the extent that he's voluntarily saying, please come, find whatever you need and take it away, that's not unusual. The challenge for the Democrats is, given the emphasis and the impact of the Trump Mar-a-Lago craziness, to now have Biden worrying about classified documents, it's a political catastrophe. If it is normal protocol for a former vice president of the United States of America or a former president in Florida 
to have documents in a box next to their Corvette in their garage, then I would say the very, very first thing we need to do is change the policy. So that is not normal. Cause that's so just should a really have, stupid thing. He should buy a Volvo and not a Corvette. It would, you think yeah, it would be a lot Volvo, better. Volvo? A really? Volvo? Yeah, he came up with Volvo. Was that an attempt really? to be cool? Really? Come on. Are they cool? Didn't they no, have? No, they used to be cool. But they're Volvo. not cool anymore. They were in like the, uh, I think there was a period in like the 80s. I remember my friend's big brother had a Volvo and he was a cool guy. It was old Volvo station wagon from the 70s, but he was considered the cool guy for it. Uh-huh. I get it. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. So here's my question to both of you. Actually, I'm going to start. I'm not trying to do like a Monty Python routine, but I want to go beyond bickering and start a real argument here. Alicia, this is not set up for you. Yet. You're about to be because I'm going to try and set this up for an assassination. We're not Alicia. dead yet. Alicia, you, here you go. You ready? If Not that you've necessarily listened to the whole TikTok that they did through the Times or the Post did one, but it seems to me like what happened here was this. It's all the lawyer's fault. And I feel like most of the time this comes down to it's all the lawyer's fault because what happened Isn't that was, usually the case? That's usually the usually case. Usually the case, yeah. See how we're setting Paul up here? The mm. future Supreme Court Justice Paul Hodes? Okay, so what apparently happened was the, uh, the initial discovery was November 2nd that there were a few of these documents in an office that Biden had used. And so they got together and the- small team at the White House, probably with the attorney at the very top, advises, look, here's the strategy. We are going to turn everything over to the Justice Department, but we're not going to talk about this publicly because that would potentially pollute the investigation and bring political and media elements into it. And that would potentially create a problem influencing the investigation that would in itself become a legal matter. And so you end up with this strategy that they think is legally sound, but which is, from a PR standpoint, terrible. And it leads to the delay in letting the public know what's going on and the drip effect, where each time they find something, they let the Justice Department know about it, but they don't want to talk about it. And when CBS News finds out about this on January 9th, they confirm the CBS News story, but they don't take the opportunity to say, oh, by the way, we found some additional documents. So they don't take control of it. They don't get it all out themselves, everything that they know at the time, and show that they're being forthcoming with the public. Alicia, here is where you get to potentially bash Paul. I think that this is a situation where if the communications people, if the politics people are in the room and have an equal voice, they would say, guys, I hear what you're saying from a legal standpoint, but we have to consider how the public is going to view this. Let's take control of this. And as soon as it's legally feasible, let's have a press conference, have a -a talkathon, and get it all out. What do you make of that? Is this all the the lawyer's fault here? No, it's whomever let the lawyer make the decision. I've been on campaigns before where there are lawyers in the room. There are questions how we're going to approach something. And The comms team will have one opinion and it always differs from the lawyer, always differs from the lawyer, which is fine. The lawyer's got one job and that's to address the legal aspects of something. The comms people have another job and that is to address the image of whomever the principal is. And who makes a decision on who they're going to side with, the comms people or the lawyer? The principal. 
in this case, maybe it's a chief of staff, maybe it's Joe Biden himself. That's who makes the decision on which strategy to take. And that's whose responsibility is. It's stupid. It's a dumb strategy. It's every day I'm watching the White House or whenever they have in the White House press conferences. And the press secretary gets asked a question and her answer is, in an effort to be completely transparent, I can't say anything. It is the stupidest strategy I've seen. And you think after weeks of this coming out, and again, you pointed out this week in another document or two, lay it all on the table. We've discussed this before. You're absolutely right. Get ahead of it. Control the message to the best of your ability. You should have gotten out there and said weeks ago, look, there may be more. We're going to acquiesce to have the FBI come on in and search everything to make sure everything's completely above boards. We find out after the fact that the FBI went in there. I believe them when they say it was at the, with their willingness, but it's such a bad narrative. You got the FBI looking through a sitting right. president of the United States, current home. It's a right ahead of it and yeah. say, we are asking for the FBI to come in. We want them to come in. We're asking for a special counsel to be appointed right now. Ask for these things so that you're in some control. You own them before, Paul, the, before the narrative has changed. Clearly, you agree that lawyers are the root of all evil. Do you think that in this case, they should be, I don't know, sent to prison? <laughs> first thing when the revolution all comes Wait, we all kill all the lawyers yeah. this is thank you very much this well, is the, all this the lawyers is, except for mine the bard could not have crafted a worse scenario than joe biden and his minions crafted for themselves his lawyers whether it was his lawyers or his staff or the president himself it turns out to be a an effing mess it's a total political catastrophe. It was mishandled from the beginning. At least we can say that in hindsight. Our revels now are ended. We have to move on. Let's hit the other end of the Oreo cookie. We'll keep this pretty short for Alicia because I, there's just only so much you could take. I'm going to rebrand this whole debt ceiling nonsense that we're going to be living through for the next six months because mm. no one wants to talk about debts or ceilings unless you're a roofer. And it all sounds like economics and it's it goes over most people's heads. Get what I did there? I'm just going to rebrand this as the Republican stupidity bomb. We did a great show with this uh, with one of the most celebrated economists in America, Mark Zandi. It's out. By the time you hear this pod, it's probably going to be out yesterday on pod. You can also find it on video. We're going to roll out with the video pod of it on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. But Mark took us through all the reasons why this is just stupendously stupid. This is a hostage crisis where you are your own hostage. Give us what we want, even though it makes no sense. Or I, the hostage taker, get it along with all of you. We're all going down. We're exploding the bomb on America. Paul, what was your big takeaway from the Mark Zandi interview on this? Is this anything other than a stupidity bomb? No. Yes, it is. Stupid is a mild term. This is really an insanity bomb. There, it's beyond stupid. It is re literally crazy. And the stakes, of course, are very high for the United States and the world. The but so what happens? The Republicans keep up the stupidity bomb. We default on our debt. We the dollar goes in the tank. The price of Alicia's eggs, which are already in short supply. I'm not quintuple overnight. And then for each day thereafter, nobody can buy anything. Nobody gets paid anything. Everybody who's getting Social Security doesn't. Uh, the military doesn't get paid. Everything grinds to a halt. Hell freezes over and the world ends. 
Other than that, the Republicans' endgame is met. They want to take down the United States government. I have no idea what they're thinking. It's not even good political theater. It's just insanity time. Here's what kind of gets me, and Alicia, maybe you can understand this better than I can, because ultimately what the group of Republicans that are driving this are demanding is cuts to Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid. And I just don't see a political universe in which any Republicans want to do that. They We've seen this many times before. The idea of touching that third rail and cutting Social Security, Republicans do not vote for such things. They're against such things. So I just... I don't understand what their end game is here, really, because they're holding out for something that they themselves don't even want. I don't get it. I don't get it. So I think the problem, there's a lot of problems with all the situation, but a problem, a big problem with the situation right now is because you have these very few Republicans making very nonsensical demands. That's become the conversation. And mm. therefore, any conversation to not want to just automatically write a check to whatever is being asked for the debt ceiling increase makes you a crazy. And that's not the case. Look, the debt ceiling this time has to be raised. It has to, or I think it comes June, where the real dangers of no paychecks and cuts to Social Security and stuff come in. But what the extremism has done is made it so that we can't talk about what the hell are we going to do with the fact that we are $31 trillion in debt. And the White House, in response to the Republicans who are asking for things that are nonsensical, but saying we want this, the White House simply says, no, the Democrats will not negotiate. The Democrats will not negotiate. Okay, bro, this is Congress. You guys are supposed to negotiate. Now, no, you're not going to negotiate away $31 trillion. But come to the table with the reality, with a conversation that we cannot keep running up trillions and trillions of dollars of debt every year. That's a fair conversation. But people don't want to have it because when they breathe, like, oh, you're one of those crazies. You're one of those crazies that are going to cut Medicare, going to cut paychecks, going to cut the military, going to cut the defense budget by 10%. You're one of those crazies. I'm not going to have that conversation with you. And that's not realistic. And that's not right. The conversation has to be had how we get ourselves out of $31.4 trillion in debt. The Biden administration is right to not negotiate with the crazies with the debt limit in the balance, because as Paul laid out, what you're talking about is an economic nuclear bomb poised over America. And so if you are giving in essentially to a hostage demand, to a terrorist demand of negotiate with us or else, and we will explode this thing, you are right to not negotiate in that circumstance. Also, because as Mark Zandi laid out, the debt ceiling, the statutory limit, really does not have anything to do with what it is that this faction says that they want. There, there is actually no economic relationship there. Now, what you're talking about, which I agree with, is we are $31 trillion in debt right now. That's actually not the issue that bothers me from a policy standpoint. The issue that bothers me is that on a 30-year basis, these numbers, by the way, come from Brian Riedel, the Manhattan Institute, a very conservative think tank. He's a former budget director for the Mitt Romney presidential campaign. This is a Republican who knows what he's talking about and whose numbers, by the way, come from the Congressional Budget Office. They are bipartisan. So this is the voice that I'm citing on this, um, just so that there's credibility on this. The problem that we have is that over the next 30 years, our country has a 104 
trillion dollar liability. $71 trillion of it is in Medicare. $33 trillion of it is in Social Security. There's only $3 trillion or so that's actually in the discretionary part of the budget, the things we think about that the federal government spends on. And so Alicia is right that there is an underlying problem with spending, and there is some political courage and partnership that's needed here to fix it. We need to agree, all right, we're going to have a detente. We're going to have a truce. If we come to an agreement that gets rid of some of this liability, we're going to do this together. We're going to jump together. We're not going to attack each other over this. Otherwise, there can't be a deal. There is an important deal that has to be made at some point here. But it should not involve, if we don't make a deal about that thing over there, we're going to explode the American economy and the worldwide economy in a tantrum to get what we want. And the real problem here is it's not just a small group of Republicans because Kevin McCarthy, in order to fulfill his own personal ambition and become Speaker of the House, gave away the keys to the car to that group. He exchanged, he guaranteed them that he would play hardball on this for them. And now he's brought to bear the entire force of the majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. He's made that the default position of the Republican Party in the House. That is the problem. We raised the debt limit three times under Donald Trump, and there was no hostage taking there. And Donald under Donald Trump, about a quarter of that debt you cited, the $31 trillion that we currently hold, that was run up under Donald Trump. And we didn't see this blowback from the Republicans then. They were all too happy to raise the debt limit three times then. So it, it seems like this is political posturing and hostage taking for, politi for political opportunity to create a crisis that doesn't need to exist. And on that note, for Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt Robeson. We will see you next week.